If you would please take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We will later in the sermon be looking at Colossians chapter 1 if you want to turn there and keep your finger there, but we'll come to it later. We continue in a series of meditations on the Trinity, and today I would like us to consider God the Son, whom we know as Jesus, Nazareth, the Lord Jesus, or Jesus Christ. In our meditation today, I'd like us to consider at least three things. The first has to do with what non-believers or unbelievers really struggle with, and that is that Jesus is God. That seems to be uh, the stumbling block for so many unbelievers. The second deals with a gap in our thinking as believers. So first of all, problem with unbelievers or non-believers. The second is a problem with believers. And thirdly, I'll try to tie this all together. Okay? But let's begin with the reality that Jesus is God, God the Son, the second member of the Trinity. We've considered for the last few weeks, as we looked at the Trinity, the words of Jesus the night before his crucifixion. I quoted this earlier in the series. Uh, This is from Sinclair Ferguson. I've often reflected on the rather obvious thought that when his disciples were about to have their world collapse in on them, our Lord spent so much time in the upper excuse me, the upper room, speaking to them about the mystery of the Trinity. If anything could underline the necessity of Trinitarianism for practical Christianity, that must surely be it. The last night that Jesus is alive with his disciples before his death, burial, and resurrection, he speaks of the Trinity. But I don't think we see it that way. Yes, we we know he talks about going to the Father and that he's going to send the Comforter, but we don't realize that, in fact, this is a very Trinitarian passage. Follow along, if you would, as I read. Uh, we'll begin in verse number 5 of John 14. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Don't you believe that I am in the father and that the father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Thomas wants to know, Lord, where are you going? We don't know where you're going and we don't know the way. And Jesus answers with that famous verse, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are actually two parts to this, this verse. Um, the second part, that no one comes to the Father except through me, is actually 
answering directly Thomas's question, but the first part, the first sentence does as well. This means that of the three things, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the way is the focus. Truth and life, in a sense, support that. Thomas wants to know what is the way, and Jesus says, I am the way, and supporting that, he is the truth and the life. He is the way because he is the truth of God, because he is the life of God. He is the truth because he is the supreme revelation of God, because he does exclusively what the Father gives him to say and to do, because Jesus is God. He is the life because he is the resurrection and the life. This is not, what Jesus is saying to Thomas is not to say, I am blazing a path. No, he is the way. He is not being the first to go down this path, go this way. He is, in fact, the way. And no one can go to the Father except through him. Now, this is one of the striking things about this passage, particularly in our culture today, because Jesus is making very exclusive claims There is no other way. There is no other truth, no other life. As one writer put it, this seems offensively exclusive. And it creates many problems for people today uh, because to be exclusive is seen as immoral and in some ways almost a form of hate speech because you're eliminating everything else. And when Jesus says, I am the way, he is being quite exclusive. And for people today, that just seems really intolerant, uh, arrogant. It seems as though you are, in fact, rejecting all other claims. I don't know if you're familiar with the book, uh, The Imitation of Christ, by Thomas Akempis. Um, this is a familiar section from his work. Follow thou me, I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way there is no going. Without the truth there is no knowing. Without the life there is no living. I am the way thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth. Life true, life blessed, life uncreated. Jesus continues, if you look at verse number 7. If you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. It's a remarkable statement. You've seen God the Father. And Philip doesn't seem to understand. So in verse number 8, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. On some level, this, this is like a ridiculous question from Philip. They have been with Jesus. They have seen the things he has done. And as highly as they think of Jesus, they have failed to recognize, in fact, that he is God in the flesh. So Philip wants direct access to God. Direct access to God the Father, which I think for most human beings would be seen as the highest experience one could have, to see God in all his glory. Jesus answers him, Don't you know me, Philip? even after I have been among you for such a long time. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. There's almost a a hint 
of sadness here. We could understand how that the enemies, the opponents of Jesus, would not recognize him as being the Son of God. They haven't been taught by Jesus. They haven't been taught by God. Their eyes have not been opened. But these disciples, chosen by Jesus, have been with him for at least two years, probably much longer. Not much longer, maybe a year longer. Um, They've been listening to him. Philip is the guy who recruited Nathaniel. This is back in chapter 1. He tells Nathaniel, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And when Nathaniel is skeptical, Philip says, come on, come and see, we have found him. And yet at the end of three years of ministry, of traveling with Jesus, Philip still doesn't seem to get it. So Jesus tells him plainly, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So how can you ask what on the face of it is a foolish question, show us the Father? Jesus goes back to the basis of faith. We do not, as God's people, believe in blind faith. That is, in fact, an oxymoron. When you look at a biblical definition of faith, there is a basis for believing. It isn't like, yeah, I, I'll just believe. No, there is, in fact, a basis. And what Jesus says to Philip is, you have seen me, you've heard me, you've seen the things that I have done. You should, in fact, believe. And what are they to believe? I am in the Father, the Father is in me. The words I say are not just my own. It is the Father living in me who is doing his work. None of this should have come as a surprise to the disciples. And for those of us who are God's people, it should not come as a surprise. But for those who are non-believers, they in fact probably need to go back and go through the Gospel of John. Chapter 5, verse 19, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. By myself, I can do nothing. Chapter 7, my teaching is not my own, it comes from him who sent me. Chapter 8, when you, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know who I am and that I speak, or I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. And then in chapter 10, I and the Father are one. How much more plain do you want it to be? In each of these cases, and more, People wanted to kill Jesus for what he said because they understood what he was claiming, that in fact he was God. One would think, if the unbelievers know what Jesus is saying, that the believers, his disciples, would understand, and yet they didn't seem to get it. And so here, on the last night before his death, Jesus makes it very plain to them that he is God the Son, that he and the Father are one. It isn't simply a matter of the intellect. Our minds are to be engaged. But this is the truth. This is who Jesus is. So for those who doubt, for those who do not believe, we would go to John 14. It is, I think, one of the clearest expressions of who Jesus is. So that's for the unbeliever. What about the believer? Look, if you would, in Colossians chapter 1. The book of Colossians chapter 1. 
from what we can tell, the Colossians um, were members of a reasonably young church in the town of Colossae. It's, lo- it's located on the banks of the Lycus River in Southeast Asia Minor. Um, it wasn't a large town. It used to be. It used to be a rather significant place uh, in the past, but um, its neighbors, Laodicea and Hierapolis, uh, Laodicea is 10 miles down the road to Hierapolis, another six miles down, they have sort of replaced it as market towns and centers of commerce. It is interesting if you look um, in chapters 2 and chapter 4, Paul mentions the church in Laodicea. Usually we think of Laodicea as, you know, Revelation chapter 3, the letter to the seven churches. Um, but he says in chapter 2, verse 11, um, verse 1, I mean, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. As best we can tell, Paul is writing to people he has never met. He's never been to Colossae. Uh, Epaphras was probably the man who started the church there. But Paul is writing to them because there is a problem. The question is, what is the problem? Um, Well, there are at least two things that he emphasizes here in this book. The first is the centrality of Christ, which we will look at in a bit. And the second is the emphasis on the fact that the Colossians are in Christ. They have been circumcised in Christ. They are now God's people. And when you take these two things together, um, you begin to see that Jesus, in fact, has replaced the law. See, in the other churches, when Paul writes them, the Jews have come in to try to confuse the people. This hasn't happened yet in Colossae. And this is a preventative letter where Paul is trying to say, listen, this is who Jesus is. And he has taken the place of the law. And secondly, he redefines what it means to be the people of God. You don't have to be a Jew to be a child of God. And what he writes here is not unsimilar or dissimilar from what he's written previously. In fact, the book of Colossians has much in common with the book of Ephesians. Okay. In writing to these people... Paul sets down what he believes to be the gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, that with his death and resurrection, the sending of the Holy Spirit, the new covenant has now been ushered in. We are no longer under the old covenant, but the new covenant. They are the people of God. I think it is verse number 13, or verses 13 and 14, um, that are... I think would have been just incredibly familiar to the people in Colossae. For he, that is Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I think this is very familiar material. When we went through the book of Colossians, we saw that the language here is that of Exodus. As God brought his people out of the rule of Pharaoh, and delivered them, so God has, by his Son, delivered us from the kingdom of darkness. It is in the verses that follow, however, that Paul presents different aspects to the reality of who Jesus is. And I would dare say that this is a gap in most Christians' thinking. We like verses 13, and particularly verse number 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Yes, we have salvation through Jesus. But there's much more to the Lord Jesus than that. 
he is much more than the one through whom we have redemption. Look if you would and follow along as I read verses 15 to 20. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It is an amazing passage, and perhaps one of the most important passages in the New Testament on the person of the Lord Jesus. But we have to see them in their context. You see, you could in fact study these six verses um, and, and not see everything else that Paul has written or not read the rest of the New Testament and still profit from it. Um, but what Paul writes here, he does so for a particular reason. i give a brief explanation and then we'll go into detail. What we find here is that the Lord Jesus is presented on two fronts, two parallel sections, verses 15, 16, and 17, section 1, and then verses 18, 19, and 20, section 2. In the first, Jesus is the Lord of creation, and in the second, he is the Lord of the church or the new creation. That's why Paul presents it in this particular way. And above all, we find that Jesus is God. In writing this passage, Paul shows that Jesus is the one who created the world. He is the one through whom the world came into being. And he is the one who, in fact, became a human being as an agent of God's rule. What this means is that Jesus is not simply a religious figure like others. This goes back to John 14, this exclusive claim. No, he's not just like the others. He is, in fact, the divine Lord through whom all things were made. The Redeemer that is mentioned in verse number 14, yes, Christians like that, is also the creator in what follows. And he is the head of the new creation that is the church. Let's go through this. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. Just to be clear, the he there goes back to verse number 14. Okay, um, The pronoun he must have an antecedent, and so that is speaking of the Lord Jesus, the son he loves. Okay, So as he begins, let's be clear, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he tell us about him? He is the image of the invisible God. This goes back to John. If you've seen Jesus, you have in fact have seen the Father. He is the second Adam. He eternally has the nature of God. He is the one in whom man was made. He is the image that man reflects. He is the firstborn over all creation. 
For some, this pre- presents problems because it seems to call into question the deity of Jesus. How can he be God if, in fact, he is the firstborn over all creation? Well, let me point out some things. First of all, firstborn is a title given to Israel. When Moses was going to be sent by God to Pharaoh, say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go so that he may worship me. But if you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. The tenth plague was not, let's see, what should we do? I've done nine really bad plagues. What should the tenth one be? No, this is in fact a statement. He would not let God's firstborn son go. And now God in fact takes the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. Not only is the title given to Israel, it is given to the Messiah. It speaks of priority, both in time and rank. So Jesus is prior, both in time and rank, to all of the rest of creation. The New English Bible has for John 1.1, when all things began, the word already was. We know it as, in the beginning was the word, well, when all things began, the, world already, uh, the word already was. Because of this, the Son of God holds supreme rank. So, when we get to verse number 16, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, and it goes on, he's not part of the created order, he is the one through whom the world has been created. All things, all things, the things you can see, the things that you can't see, visible and invisible, thrones and powers. One writer put it this way, wherever you look, or whatever realities you think of, you discover entities which, even if they do not acknowledge the fact, owe their very existence to Christ. They are his handiwork. All things, all things were created by Christ. By the way, there isn't a dichotomy here of visible versus invisible. It's visible and invisible. It's not material versus spiritual. It's all things. Jesus is the one who created all things, and he is Lord over all things. Keep that in mind, because it's important when we will tie this all together. He mentions thrones and powers, rulers and authorities, the power structures. In our country at this point, we are going through a difficult time as people struggle for power, and I think we seem to lose sight of the fact that it is the Lord Jesus who is Lord overall. For the pagans in Colossae, they saw magic. They saw religious practices as things through which to manipulate these powers. That's what magic is about, to get things done the way you want them done. And, no. The Lord Jesus is Lord over all things. All things were created by him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This summarizes it all. This is who the Lord Jesus Christ is. We tend to be stuck in verse number 14. We have redemption. He saved us. We're going to heaven. That is true. 
but he is Lord over all things. He is the one who sustains the world. When we try to think about the Trinity, which can end up with a brain cramp, it's just very difficult. We are tempted, I think, at points to think that Jesus is limited to saving us. And God the Father takes care of you know, providence and things like that, and the Spirit is the one through whom he works. Paul would have us know that Jesus is not simply the Redeemer, he is the sustainer of all things. All things are under his authority. And if that is not the case, then the third point that we will get to in a few moments will not be possible. The Colossians are members of the human race. They were created by the Lord Jesus Christ. But they are now members of the Church of Christ. They are members of the body, and therefore they have been recreated, they have been created by the Lord Jesus Christ as the new humanity. So verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Um, I think we like verse 18 like we like verse number 14. Verses 16 and 17 we're not so sure about. Because we seem to be stuck in this idea that Jesus is the Redeemer, which he is. I can't emphasize it enough. But he is also the creator, the sustainer of all things. He's the head of the body. That's the church. There is a mutual interdependence. There is an organic unity. We are in Christ. Because not only has he redeemed us, he created us in the first place, he has recreated us. We are not only creatures, we are new creatures, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5. In Ephesians, he writes, From him the whole body, that is the church, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Verse number 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. If you look at these two verses, you'll find a sequence of in him, through him, to him. It's the same sequence, by the way, we find in verse number 16 that talks about creation. We're not so keen on him as the creator. He is the creator. But here we see him as the redeemer. It is in him, through him, and to him. But let's now tie this together. Let's get to the third point that brings it all together. And that is reconciliation. Reconciliation. If you want to turn to 2 Corinthians 5, I'm going to read three verses there. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning at verse number 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There it is. In Christ, a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. For God was reconciling the world to himself and Christ, not counting man's sin or men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now, 
I would submit to you that the only reason that it is possible for Jesus to reconcile us to God the Father and to make us new creatures is because he's the one who created us in the first place. He is the creator. And now that this, this, this junction has happened, this separation has happened, he is the one who in fact can reconcile us to God the Father. And how does he do this? On the cross, took on himself our sins, the things that had created this barrier between us and God. Jesus gave his life that we might have life. The worst thing that sin can do, let me just say a rhetorical question, what is the worst thing that sin can do? Can kill. That's the worst thing it can do, it can kill. By dying, Jesus exhausted the power of sin and therefore reconciled us to God. By the way, the all things, does that include everything in creation? Yes. It's not just those who have put their faith in Christ. Yes. But trees and plants, God's creation. We've seen this as we've looked what is the goal? What is, what is this all headed to? The new heaven and the new earth. A new creation. See, Jesus died that we might have new life. But he also died that there will be a new creation. He who created the old creation died that there might be a new creation. Does this mean that all human beings will be saved? This is a big question and a big issue in the church today. Um, and I would say the answer is no. Sadly, it is no. God sent his son to reconcile a people for himself. Then why does Paul say to reconcile all things to himself? Well, first of all, he's writing to a group of Gentiles. There may have been some Jews in Colossae. We know that there are about 10,000, 11,000 in Laodicea down the road. There may have been some Jews. But Paul is speaking primarily to Gentiles who used to be pagans. And the message he's talking about sounds really, really Jewish. And they're not Jews. And Paul's like, no. Christ gave his life for all, for Jews and Gentiles alike. But also he came to reconcile his creation to himself and to reestablish a relationship between himself and his creation. And what does this reconciliation involve? If you go back to Colossians 1, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith and established, firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel you heard. That has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Three things for your meditation this week on the person of Jesus. First of all, for unbelievers, for non-believers who really find it difficult to accept that Jesus is in fact God, 
read, Rome, uh, read John chapter 14. There it is. I and the Father are one. It's spelled out. For those of us who are the people of God, let us not make our Jesus a small Jesus who died so that we can go to heaven when we die. He's Lord of all. He created the world. He is recreating the world. He is redeeming the world. Our Jesus should not be too small. Uh, years ago, a book was written called Your God is Too Small. I think for many believers, our Jesus is too small. Our view of the Christ is too small. We fail to see him as Lord of all. And then thirdly, if he is Lord of all, then he and he alone can do the work of reconciliation. It's remarkable. He created the world and then the world went its own way. He comes into the world, gives his life, that he might reconcile the world back to himself. That's who the second member of the Trinity is, God the Son. And by the Spirit, may we think on these things in the days to come. Let's pray together. Our Father, we recognize that it is because of the Lord Jesus that we are here today. That he came and lived among us, uh, told us all about you, gave his life, was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven. We are grateful for this, these great truths. But we confess that oftentimes our thoughts are quite limited. We fail to recognize that he is Lord of all that he is the creator, the redeemer of all things. And he is the one who is reconciling all things to himself. As we speak to those who do not believe, may we be confirmed that he is in fact God. As we speak, as we live our lives with each other, may we be reminded of who he is and not simply limit him to someone who purchased a ticket for us to get to heaven. No, he is the Lord God Almighty, Lord over all creation, including the new creation, your church. Some of these things, frankly, are beyond our comprehension. May your spirit give us understanding, and may we think on these things in the days to come. And may it affect the way that we live our lives. That we don't limit Jesus to Sunday mornings at church on Melrose, but we see him as the Lord of all things. And not just the good things, even those things that are in rebellion against him, he is Lord over them. Thank you for bringing us together today. And we remember those who aren't with us today. Pray for Dave as he prepares to speak next Sunday. That you would guide his thoughts and give him direction as he prepares his sermon. May each of us be aware of your presence as we go through the world in this coming week. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.